You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Follow at Thoroughly Good on Twitter, at Thoroughly underscore Good on Instagram. You can also find Thoroughly Good on Facebook, at Thoroughly Good Me. My name is John Jacob, and this is episode number 119. collection of new songs for children commissioned by Britain Peer's Arts is released this week by composer Russell Hepplewhite with words by author Michael Rosen. The suite, entitled Everything, joins the ever-growing collection of songs by Nico Mooley, Erilyn Wallen, Jonathan Dove and a whole host of others under the banner of Friday Afternoons, a reference to composer Benjamin Britten's collection of songs of the same name. There's more information about Friday Afternoons, including the full collection of songs and supporting resources at fridayafternoonsmusic.co.uk. Britain's original collection of songs was composed between 1933 and 1935 when the composer was in his early 20s. They're songs I remember singing in the early 80s when I was a kid. Old Open Brown was one of those songs that particularly embedded itself, a haunting funeral march built on a recurring simple melody that saw the chorus subdivide into groups, creating an ever more complex canon with every successive verse. It introduced a form of music to me and my peers, and it created a magical aural treat as the canon built throughout the song. It maybe even promoted a sense of confidence in holding your own melodic line in a small group of singers, in addition to those often overlooked skills of self-discipline and recall. Where Britain thrived, I think, was where he created theatrical excursions. That he was able to create these in such a short space of time is another characteristic of the man's work. These were fun, simple creations that made for engaging, inclusive singing opportunities. Cuckoo is another great example, a captivating musical evocation built on a recognisable call in nature, tinged with a melancholic air. In this podcast, the composer of Everything, Russell Hepplewhite reflects on his journey from music college to teaching and how writing for primary school children and his teaching colleagues helped him on his path to finding his compositional voice. Russell and I met at his studio near to the South Bank in London in early May and it was the first in real life interview I had conducted in many, many months, which is why at times I was a little distracted. 
I normally ask people what they can see out of their nearest window, but you can't see anything, can you? Because it's no, frosted. It's what I think it's one of the benefits of this studio. Is it? Is that for you or for other people? Both. <laughs> uh, tell me what where we are and why we're here. We are in Makespace Studios, which is uh, where I rent a small space um, that I can put my piano and my computer stuff here, and I can write music and play the piano all hours of the day. Uh, I see I see tiling, which suggests that either you do some kind of meat preparation in the corner, or this wasn't what this room was originally intended for. Originally, this room was a bathroom, I believe. Um, and uh, when they converted it into another studio, uh, they just left the tiles as decoration, I believe. Right. I, my eye is drawn to the shelf, which is Boeing. I mean, I, I don't normally judge people's environment, but I am quite worried about that for, uh, shelf. Yes, I'm, I'm not taking any responsibility for that. That is all my wife's cello music. Oh. Wow. Um, um, so, so strong <laughs> relationship. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, there's quite a lot of uh, cello music. There is. It's yeah. clearly very heavy. Um, I mean, you've revealed so much in such a short space of time. <laughs> Tell me who you are and what you do. Uh, my name's Russell Hepplewhite, and I am a composer. Um, how long have you been composing Russell Hepplewhite? Also, before we get on to that, what a great name for SEO. Um, that is really memorable. Uh, how long have you been composing? How did you get into it? Why? Um, I have been composing since the age of five. Um, because in the very early days when I was uh, learning to play the piano I used to go to this um, very wonderful piano teacher who lived locally and you know she'd do all the right things she'd say you need to learn this piece and you need to do these scales and all that kind of stuff but what I really wanted to do was make up my own music and that was what I spent a lot of my so-called practice time actually doing and I didn't really know it was composing um, it was just kind of you know tinkering around and making a few tunes and Chords. Why did you want to do, if you didn't know it was composing, why did you want to do that? Was it a displacement activity? I think it was because it was more interesting. So, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I, I think it was more interesting. I was really obsessed with the idea of um, making up tunes, really. Um, something I'm still obsessed with. What did your music teacher have to say about that at the time? Um, she didn't really know because, yeah, she didn't really know, because um, my parents were fantastically proactive in helping me also do the practice that I was supposed to be doing. So they would sit with me and say, no, no you need to do this as well. Um, so, so essentially your parents colluded with you in the deceit of your music teacher. That's what you're, that's what you're telling potentially, me. Potentially. Right. Uh, the, thing I, uh, the thing that piques my interest is when I read about composers who talk about how they were writing when they were five years old, there is a bit of me that goes out please <laughs> find that really annoying how yeah. dare you say that you're obviously quite comfortable saying that well so what happened was um i then just carried on doing that forever uh, but not doing it with any sort of serious intent just it was it was just having a bit of fun improvising really um and then when i went to music school i went to cheatham's when i was 17 to do my a levels and I had uh, an, a new piano teacher there who was phenomenal, but extremely um, uh, full on um, in terms of the demands that she put uh, on me. Into you know, I had to practice for hours every single day, and I didn't have time for composing. And so uh, at that point, I kind of had to stop. Um, and then I sort of. Uh, kind of took it up a little bit towards the end of my time there. And then when I went to the Royal College of Music, I had to decide which one I was going to do. Um, and everybody was saying, you should do piano, 
that's definitely a, a better thing for you and I didn't have any track crushing. record. Crushing. Crushing. <laughs> I didn't really have any track record as, as doing that much composing and, and and so I said no I'm going to do the opposite and I went to do composition oh. um, uh, I, I still did a bit of piano again it kind of swapped around towards the end of my time there and then when I left college I did this thing immediately where I diversified hugely and sort of didn't really do much composing for years um, uh, and so what happened was I went off and I became a primary school music teacher and I was doing that days and days a week, which I absolutely loved. Okay. Extremely tough, but yes. absolutely loved it. Um, and I did that for years, you know, kind of two or three days a week um, in different schools, um, taking the whole class, doing their music for the week. Um, you seem so young. <laughs> That's a good thing. clearly not affected by having spent years <laughs> doing primary school teaching. I think I did it for about eight years. <gasps> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was doing loads of... <laughs> Loads of other stuff as well, but wow. no, I, I loved it. Wow. I think it was... Were yeah. they nice children? 99% uh, of them were fantastic. Um, uh, and actually, I will be genuinely honest and say those that I didn't manage to connect with were probably the ones who were not buying what I was doing. You know, they were not... They weren't on board, and that was probably... Probably my fault, actually. How did you do? Well, let's not talk about fault. That seems seems a little harsh. Um, uh, how did you deal with those people who? I don't mean how did you discipline them, yeah, yeah. but how did you sort of respond internally to those who didn't engage? Because I think I'd wanted to be a teacher, mm. believing that I would be able to manage it. Although friends of mine tell me I would have been a terrible teacher. Uh, I don't see them very often. Uh, but I think that I would have struggled with those who didn't engage. How did you handle it? Um, I'm not sure that I ever kind of worked out. I mean, the, one of the difficulties was I saw so many children in, a, in an average week that I'm not sure I was able to give enough time and attention to working out exactly why specific children weren't connecting with the song we were doing or the activity or the whatever it was. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I probably just you didn't. You just overlooked them <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure I overlooked them but I sort of thought to myself well you know hopefully they'll get carried along with the rest of the class who are really enjoying this and and usually it worked but so your strategy was don't focus too much otherwise I mean presumably I, I just think that I would have taken it extremely personally I sort of get the impression that you didn't because you had a, a, a fairly effective strategy of not getting too immersed yeah I'm not trying to trick you, by no, the way. No, no, I'm, no, I'm no, genuinely that's, interested. No, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. Really nervous. No, no, I'm, no, no, I'm fine. Um, I think, well, as a teacher, I don't think you can always know exactly what's going on in the mind of each student, and I, I don't think you necessarily need to. Um, I, I think it. I, I think sometimes uh, students uh, take a long time to kind of warm up to a teacher or a specific activity if they've not been used to doing any singing or any composing or improvising whatever whatever it is um so yeah no I, i've not taken offense when when i haven't connected yeah i would have been a terrible teacher then because i wouldn't <laughs> have. um <clears throat> what did you see in their eyes when you knew that they had engaged um enthusiasm beyond anything else enthusiasm just a thirst to do more more singing more improvising more playing with instruments more um, rhythm games, just just more of everything, um, and uh, they just they just came alive. You know, they really really came alive. And sometimes 
they were very lively classes, depending on the school that I was in. I mean, I, I moved around a bit, but they were very lively, and I never minded that because it was always to do with the excitement, the enjoyment of making music. Um, and the other thing that I realised is that you can teach anything, th pretty much, through music. Um, and sometimes in one particular school um, that I taught at in Westminster, the, the other teachers who realised that the kids were really enjoying the music lessons would come to me and say, I'm really struggling to get this scientific principle into these kids. <laughs> Is there anything you can... Yeah, 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 they would. Well, you know, it's kind of how it works best, actually. And, um, and they'd say, could you just do a song about, you know, whatever, atoms or, or whatever it was? And I'd say, yeah, okay. Because they knew that I, I wrote and, and I could, you know, kind of hatch a, a song quite quickly. Um, you were a delivery mechanism. Potentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I quite liked that because then it felt like you might be sort of saying, well, we, we're doing music, but actually they've learnt loads of science. All the other way around, you know, they're doing science, but then they could sing their song to their teacher and, you know, it worked both ways. Uh, so... You left primary school teaching eight years ago. This is not Desert Island Discs. No, more than eight years ago. <clears> oh, but, yeah, yeah, but you did it for eight years, and then after yeah. that you left. Yeah. Um, and then what did you do then? When did the composing stop? I mean, you were composing then, so... Yeah, I was doing bits and pieces. Um, I was doing... All through that time, I was doing a lot of work for um, outreach and community and education departments for, for companies like English Drawing Opera. Um, I did a lot of work for Rombe Dance Company. Um, the same sort of thing. So I'd go and do loads of workshops... I do things like turn up and write a, an opera in a week with a group of secondary school children who were off timetable for that week. Um, and I enjoyed that. And I did it, I did huge amounts of that alongside the, the teaching. But then what happened was I found that I was losing my way composing because I was writing so much that was very specifically targeted to suit this group of children who've never sung before, so you can go in at this level and push them to there. Um, or this group of children who sing three times a week and they make recordings, you know, every term. And so I was, you know, I'd go in at another level and, and push them to, to wherever they could go to. And I was doing that so, so much, but I found that I was losing where my voice was. I didn't know really where my voice was. Um, and so at the age of 29, 30, I sort of um, kind of stopped and thought, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Um, I have to start again, and so I, I did. I, I rebuilt myself. Um, I had some tuition from, from various different people and rebuilt myself and started again to work out what my voice was. Um, and uh, and then it sort of settled, and then I worked out what that was. And Was that a straightforward process? No, it was horrific. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying um, because... Everybody, my whole life had been saying, you know, anything to do with composing, it's all about your own unique voice, which I sort of believe and sort of don't, actually, but, but that's another matter altogether. Um, but but I, I just thought, well, this is what I'm trying to do, this is what I've always wanted to do, and, and I don't know what I'm trying to say. So I had to start again, but um, that took a, a fair few months, um, and... What was the... What was difficult about it? I'm not. I'm not making yeah. light of it. But what when you say it was difficult, what was the difficult aspect to it, and how did you sort of get through it? Where 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 were the where were the points right. where things took off? Well, where the the difficulty lies is that you you have to 
to an extent, work out what type of composer you want to be and who your audience, who you want to connect with and, and all that sort of stuff. And contemporary classical music, um, if, you, if you want to use that term, is, very, is a very complicated um, place to exist um, in terms of uh, where your music sits and who you're trying to target it towards and which sort of companies might or might not commission you based on various uh, things. By which you mean contemporary art music. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and so it's very difficult to work out things like let's be really uh, straightforward about it. You know what type of harmony you're going to use. Mm-hmm. Are you using predominantly functional tonal harmony, or are you going to say this is non-tonal, atonal, for better uh, use of the term? Um, and it's all been done before. Mm-hmm. You know, it has all been done before. So so then you say, well, do I do I Uh, borrow a bit of each am I very fluid with that or do I stick very tightly to modes and scales or what and so it's you know that to me was the biggest thing that I had to kind of work out does that mean that at the uh, the in the process of trying to work out I've now noticed I can now see where the shower curtain was that's where my eye is drawn I'm really sorry (laughs) midway through this really really sort of potentially deep conversation my eye is drawn to the shower fitting yeah it really is and there's a rather unpleasant hook in the ceiling isn't there where you could hang meat if you wanted to anyway I have never thought about no okay that's yeah I'm sorry about that I'll look down at the floor um when you are making those decisions or when you were making those decisions yeah. presumably it's quite daunting because there's a certain amount of future thinking you know if I go down this path am I closing yeah. uh, reducing my audience size mm. uh, is that was that daunting very and you're also looking at um, uh, how you might be perceived you know and and that becomes very scary because you know if you go down that road um, does it close doors to these sorts of companies who are looking for these sorts of composers or all those things and does one uh, does one have to does one end up comparing oneself to or or looking at what the market is and then going well they're doing that while well, my instinctively I want to go here but actually do, do you see what I mean well yes but also um, something that I remind myself constantly is that you have to be true to yourself and you know you with the the best of intentions you say well I'm going to write music that sits fantastically well on this radio station as opposed to this radio station Um, but if it's not true to really what I believe in then what on earth am I doing that for Um, and you know I I still grapple with all this stuff because it's ongoing you know Uh, it's not it's not easy to solve but I do solve it in that I kind of think well I am at least being true to myself and this is the music I want to write. I enjoy it and hopefully it connects with some people somewhere, you know, on this piece. You know, there was this audience in the house and they enjoyed it. Most of them did or or whatever, you know. There is an ongoing thread though because what I hadn't anticipated was that you'd spent as long as you had as a primary school teacher which explains uh, writing music, operas for children. I mean, that's, that's the constant thing. Yes. Yes, I think it is. Um, it is. I... <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> well, how I got there was after I'd, after I'd sort of rebuilt the compositional uh, person that I am, um, what was wonderful was English Drawing Opera came back to me and said, actually, we want you to, uh, we're, we're going to commission you to write an opera that can be toured around the country um, by, by ETO, um, 
that will go into school halls, studio theatres, local spaces, and be performed for kids. Um, and I, so I wrote Like the Space Dog, um, which was the first one of the, the, the four or five, I think it was five operas I then wrote for, for Etio in the same, in the same model. Um, and Laika was an absolutely bizarre piece because we wrote it on, it was incredibly ambitious, but it was for school halls. And, and the premise was that um, the company, the, the, you know, the, the singers would have to uh, take the set, put it together, construct the set at the front of the school hall in half an hour and then be ready to perform. Then they'd move on to another school in the afternoon. And then in the evening, they'd go onto the main stage and do Figaro, whatever opera they were doing. Um, My mind is reminded of, uh, or rather I'm reminded of uh, a comedy sketch show where a troop of a troop of actors did exactly that. And it was a, I think it might be Mitchell and Webb, it was an absolute disaster. I'm sure it wasn't an absolute disaster. <laughs> no, it was a really extraordinary path that that show has had because from the smallest of beginnings in terms of you know uh, there was no lighting there was no special theatre it was just a school hall with all the trappings uh, that, that come with that and it, it you know it, we, we performed it a, a lot around the country but then they took it to the Armel International Opera Festival in Hungary and it was pitched against all these other operas you know the, the kind of the, the heavyweights of the opera world uh, by all these different companies, one from Turkey, one from Italy, one from France, whatever. And our piece, we thought, oh God, this is dreadful. They put this tiny little piece in, in this huge opera house uh, and each opera was performed uh, the next night, you know, concurrently. And I think we were on the last night. And then the next day there was this award ceremony and they judged the best production and all this kind of stuff. And we thought, well, we can't possibly compete with this. You know, we've got we've got this tiny little show, really, um, in terms of scale. You know, five singers, four in the band, um, and then it's competing with you very know, British, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's competing oh, with yeah. 60, 60 singers and seventy in the orchestra, and 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 they they went for it, and they you know they gave us lots of lovely awards for best production and all that kind of stuff, and it was really sweet. And then the show sort of disappeared for a while. Um, and then, you know, in the last two or three years, enormous interest from, you know, big opera houses in Europe who want to put it on. I mean, it, it got um, a production by the Nouvelle Opera Fribourg in Switzerland in 2019 on just the most gigantic scale. I mean, everything was flying and, and disappearing into the stage. I mean, it was extraordinary. As a composer, you're obviously um, focused on the music, but do you... Do you get excited by the scale and venue? Absolutely. And... <laughs> absolutely. How very yeah. honest of you. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm not all about the music at all. That's that's. But but you know that's that is an interesting. Putting in a big venue, <laughs> then I'll be there. <laughs> it's an interesting point actually because I am. Uh, the, the whole thing about opera is that it brings all these different things together, and I, I'm not all about the music at all. It's it's got to be the whole package, you know. It's got to be everything to do with the staging and the lighting and the costumes and the music and the, the words. And um, so, uh, you know, unfortunately, COVID has claimed uh, like the Space Dog um, from continuing it. <laughs> it's run. I mean, there were lots of lovely shows set up for places like the Opera Comique in Paris and all that, but it's all, you know, disappeared. Unfortunately, but it will come back. Presumably, that they're not going to go. Yeah, we're not. Under, oh, you're well, you're pulling a face that says, "Well, well I don't think it's going to come." I back. really hope. I really hope these places are going to still want to put it on. But part of the problem is that they've had their schedules pushed back so far now that you know there was there's such a massive queue of productions in advance of of, of mine, and I, I don't know. It's everything's to be 
decided? Uh, we're also meant to be talking about Britain Piers Arts mm. Friday afternoons. So when I think about Friday afternoons, obviously I think about Benjamin Britain yeah. and I think about seeing old Abram Brown um, and it being actually a terrifying thing to sing, really. It's mm-hmm. very Britain to sing something to frighten the children, I think. Um, uh, but it, it feels as though it's sort of now turned into an institution yeah. as a result of, I think it was Philippa Reeve, sort of commissioning various composers uh, to write responses to or their own sort well, of so suite of songs. Not responses to, I mean, you can ignore the Britain entirely, um, though you can't ignore, the, uh, you don't need to ignore the legacy of the songs, um, uh, because that's very important, that's very interesting to the Commission. But the idea is that um, the Friday afternoon, it's a project, it's a song bank, effectively. And so what happens is each year they commission a composer and uh, lyricist to add to this uh, bank of songs. Um, and the Commission is, you can write up to, I think it's between six and 12 songs. Um, and then they get a premiere and then they are put onto the website in all possible formats. So, you know, and, and it's all free. That's the extraordinary thing about it. You know, there is such a wealth of different styles, different levels of difficulty um, available. You know, you can get songs from all sorts of different composers, you can search on themes you can you know if you think we want to sing a a song about snow well there's songs about snow if you want to sing a song about the elements there are songs about elements whatever you want to do um so it's it's an incredible project really uh what drew you to it so um what happened was one of my it wasn't actually Leica, but another i think it was shackleton's cat which was a couple of years later i see a poster Yes, indeed. English touring opera. Yes, this is boat and black cat. Yes, um, that little piece uh, was another in the same model as Leica, um, and that toured to Snape, and um, Philippa and others came and saw it and said, "We." She was very, very sweet about the piece, and she said, "We think you write beautifully for children because there were a couple of songs planted in there that children could join in with, rather than just having it performed for them." Um, she said, "We'd like to commission you to write." Friday afternoons songs, um, and see that excites me. Partly yeah, because partly because I I spent some time at Albert, but uh, is it is it an exciting thing to receive that kind of invitation? Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Um, and and they were really really um, open to ideas about who I wanted to write with. Um, I've written with various different um, librettists and lyricists. Um, but I wanted to go with someone new because uh, that's always a bit daunting and exciting. And my first thought was, would Michael Rosen do it? And so they approached him and he said, yes. So do you went. know Michael Rosen? Uh, not personally. So you just basically found you found a name that <laughs> excited you <laughs> and then went, go and get him. No, no, no. <laughs> I knew some of his books. I knew some of his uh, from, from, you know, when I was very young. Um, and... Actually, what, what had happened was I'd been reading one of his collections of poems for young children to my son, and I thought the rhythms of these are just sensational. These would dance off the page and be set to music. And it was at, at that point that I thought he'd be great. So we were very lucky that he said yes. Um, tell me about... No, that wasn't what I was going to ask you. Now there is going to be an edit point. 
because I now have completely <laughs> forgotten my question, which is really annoying. Never mind. It was, uh, it was, there was something about, God, isn't that annoying? It will come back. It will come back. Um, who was the, who was the teacher who you connected with, uh, with music originally? Did you have class music lessons? Was there a class music teacher who had an impact? Um, or was it the piano teacher? It was very much the piano teacher. Uh, n we did a little bit of singing at school, but we didn't have music or uh, music lessons or music classes. Um, we, yeah, we did a little bit of singing, and I think we did the odd school production when I was at primary school, which was which I enjoyed a lot. But no, we we didn't really do much. I mean, I mean, I wish I could say the opposite and say that it was all as a result of kind of um, ensemble music making that I was drawn to it. But no, it was just a damn good piano teacher who got me, you know, far on musically. I suppose what I'm trying to get to is where does the ability to write for uh, children mm. as you're required to come from? It doesn't come from the... I don't think it comes from the piano teacher. I'm wondering whether it comes shortly before thinking that you want to be a primary school teacher. Um, so where it comes from... Um, is uh, what we're talking about here is writing for them to sing rather than mm. to have things that performed for them to watch. But um, for them to sing, well, it was really trial and error in being a, a, a primary school music teacher, actually. I mean, the number of songs and shows I wrote for different different groups of kids and then doing all the outreach and community work with, with people like ETO before I wrote the operas for them. Um, it was, I mean, you know, there were plenty of songs I wrote that didn't work, you know, in those early days, tons of them, uh, because I realised the pitching wasn't right for that group at that age, or the rhythms were too difficult, or too boring, or too easy, or whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean. So where, where? Okay, so if it's trial and error, yeah. uh, and so therefore practice, because that repetition is back yeah. going through the creative process yeah. over and over again. Where did the impetus for becoming a primary school teacher come from? Because you went to, the, I mean, I'm not saying that people who go to the Royal College don't become primary school teachers, but my assumption is, if you go, if you pursue that line, then teaching isn't the first step to take. It was only part of quite a varied package of things I was doing. I mean, I was also kind of depping on shows in the West End and and things like that. Um, and what else was I doing? Well, I started examining for ABRSM quite a lot at that time as well. So I was doing lots of different things. It was one component. But it was, I guess, the day job. It was, it was what I was doing the most of. Um, why did I do it? Um, I loved the idea of imparting um, music to others, really. It was as simple as that. And it's, it's still what kind of um, uh, fires me up when I'm writing now, even if it's not for children. I mean, I do write quite a lot of music that's nothing to do with children. You know, I write a lot of choral music, uh, etc. But it's always the same thing. It's... it's it's a sense of kind of communicating to others um, and getting them to communicate from there. I've now remembered the question, but unfortunately we need to navigate to that question via another thing first. Never mind. Uh, what is the voice that, that you settled on then? Um, it's really hard to describe. I know, which is why I'm asking. Okay, um, the, the voice that I settled on... I would describe as being fairly tonal, though not afraid to use 
very atonal stuff at times, um, but fairly tonal. Um, I try to be, uh, uh, this sounds like a bad word, but accessible um, because I want it to be able to be um, music that is both immediate and can connect with people. Um, and what is the guilt around accessible? I think that probably stems from music college, doesn't it? There's a huge guilt around accessible. There is, there is. Um, uh, not for me, um, but but no, the, generally it's, speaking, yeah, it's it's so. Oh yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. Um, there's still there, there's still as I, I'm afraid I, I think there is a bit of snobbery around that word. You know, somehow it's kind of dumbing down, or it's not intelligent enough music, or you know, whatever. Um, but ultimately, I'm not really fussed about that. <laughs> Did that enter into your thinking when you had that horrendous time working out what your voice was? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's loads of stuff that I had acquired in terms of kind of um, ideas and thoughts that had to be dispelled. Um, uh, and that was one of them, you know. So who are you trying to reach? Well, you know, it has to be music that I want to listen to and that connects with me and... And I can appreciate all sorts of different music. Um, and I, I love some of the most, it's an old-fashioned term now, but avant-garde music, you know, that, that would appeal or usually appeals to a very small number of people. I, I can love that just as much as some extremely populist stuff. So I, I suppose the difficulty here is that we're talking about um, uh, kind of genres of music. And, and I personally would love us to get away from that as a as a society or as a... Uh, as a group of people, I mean, you know, uh, it sort of puts barriers up rather than bringing them down. The other question that I wanted to ask you was, oh, no, hang on, we haven't really talked about the songs, which is they are titled rather ambitiously... Everything. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, was that because neither of you could come up with the title? So, or because... so what, what happened was I... Um, so, you know, when, when I talked to Michael first, he said, well, how many songs should we do? And I said, well, I want to do 12 because I want to do 12. Because that's a nice number. That's a brilliant number. And, and we sort of kicked around a few ideas and, and one of them was the months of the year. So, you know, a January song, a February song. But then we felt that that was actually quite limiting because, you know, does a school want to pick up a song called November in March? Does it feel conflicted and, and all that? So then he came back with this idea of just throwing the kitchen sink at it, really, and saying we're going to write everything. And there really is everything in there. We've sort of grouped the songs into three groups of four. So the elements are there. So we've got the four elements as the, the, the first set. Then we've got everything to do with science, uh, the science of being a human, so things to do with cells, atoms, discovery, invention... And then we've got um, more broadly what it is to be a human, so language, a song all about the fact that we use words all the time. Um, uh, there's a song actually called Us and what it means to be us. Um, so it's about those three key things. Um, and I think the idea that Michael had was that, you know, obviously we can't tackle absolutely everything, but he's planted enough ideas in the, the lyrics that actually kids could go off and research and uh, unearth a whole new world from each song. Um, so it is very hugely ambitious. It sounds like a, a well-rounded primary school education project. Um, or am I reading too much into that? <laughs> well, I'm desperately looking to tie up Lisa. I think it, I think it is. Uh, I mean, there's no two ways about it. You know, there are lots of educational ideas and themes and characters within the set. But um, we haven't, we don't want to make them cerebral in, in, in any way. And, you know, Michael's lyrics are so playful and light and fun that actually 
if kids just enjoy singing them and have a great time, then that's fantastic. Um, when do you get to hear? When do both of you get to hear them in real life? Because I've heard recordings. There's a couple that the London Youth Choir have already recorded. So we were due to have our big premiere uh, last May, but obviously that couldn't happen. So then um, Britain Peers came up with this idea of doing some lockdown videos and they kind of put the resources together to, to help London Youth Choir to do that. And, you know, they did these incredible videos. I mean, just astonishingly brilliantly put together and beautifully sung and directed. Um... Uh, and then the next step was, well, how long is this pandemic going to last? And will we be able to do a live premiere in 2021 or not? And and then actually things have rattled on and, and no is the answer. So the next step was that they did an open call and said, we've got 10 songs left. We're going to farm them out. Anyone who wants to, you know, apply and you can have a song each. And we've had some, we, was an enormous response, absolutely overwhelming response. Um, but, um, you know, uh, Ireland, Scotland, Wales and, and England are all represented and lots of different choirs from very large choirs to very small choirs to um, uh, hugely um, uh, prestigious choirs. They're all in there. It's, it's wonderful. Is there, so, an, is there an element of, um, sorry to interrupt your point, but is there an element of how uh, something like Britain Piers yeah. and Friday Afternoons provides you with additional reach that perhaps you wouldn't get on your own absolutely i mean just this project i was reading on twitter and i i would love to drop all the details in here but i'm not sure i took them on board enough to be able to do this competently so i'm not going to um but uh, i saw on twitter that there's this wonderful project with a connection of different academies that were learning one of the two songs that has been so far released um, and they, they tied it all together and 750 kids learnt this song yesterday afternoon with one of the Friday afternoon ambassadors so yeah wow, I mean the reach is, a lot. is as a result as a result of digital connections as well uh, yeah exactly I mean they, they were taught online they were taught um, you know on a, on, a, on a computer screen so I mean I, I just think that's incredible so yes the reach is, is vast and actually when these when all the songs are out there we know that they get picked up all over the world and, and different countries, um, you know, different uh, choirs in different countries go for them. Which is Does brilliant. that have an impact on you creatively, knowing that so quickly so many people have experienced something that you've created? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, how very no, modest of you. So. <laughs> Most think, people would riff on that, but well, no, you're just going to say no. I think, I mean, it's brilliant, it's extraordinary. Um, but uh, it doesn't it, I can't let it affect what I do in terms of um, it's exactly the same as when you get reviews you know I've had great reviews and bad reviews and everything in between and I learnt quite quickly that I have to switch off from all of that because if you believe them and you go they really liked this piece what was I doing so brilliantly there and they didn't like this one what was I doing so badly you're in a mess you know you can't go round that sort of loop and it's the same thing you know if, if lots and lots of people pick up this song and, and everyone enjoys it I can't just say right that's the I've just got to write more of that I've just got to keep going with what I think is right what is a bad review for a composer um, I don't mean names or works I mean as in you know what constitutes a I'm not reading that again um what constitutes a bad review um someone who's missed the point Okay. I think, um, yeah, someone who, or, or someone and, who, and who is comfortable revealing <laughs> in writing. 
<laughs> under a brand name that they have missed the point. Well, they're just idiots, aren't they? <laughs> I think it's just to do with... Um, sometimes I've seen reviews, not always in my stuff. You know, I've been to shows and, and things, and then I've read a review and I thought, they've totally seen it from the wrong side of the equation, you know. Um, and uh, sometimes they don't do their homework you know, sometimes reviewers don't do their homework and, and they just turn up and they, they miss something massive about a, a production. Um, but anyway. Okay. Well, point taken, I will bear that in mind. <laughs> I often think that uh, sneering at the audience is a bad thing uh, and also um, making it all about you. Although I do use the first person quite a lot, so, you know, I probably need to work on that. Uh, but that was really, that, that was the motivation for asking. <laughs> I just needed some tips. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to tell me about that I haven't asked you? Um, not that I can think of. Uh, I've introduced the songs. I've talked about all of that. Um, what, got, what, uh, what was it like working with Michael Rosen? Oh yeah, um, absolutely brilliant because he's not in the least bit precious about his words, which is just so refreshing and fantastic. And you know, um, uh, I think I can honestly say I've edited some of his lyrics. <laughs> oh, <laughs> is from... he aware of that? <laughs> yes, he is. Purely from the fact that uh, actually I don't think edit's the right word. Cut or change. Oh, okay. Um, because I mean I always do that when I'm working with text, and he was just fantastic about it and said, "Yeah, do what you want with them. If they, if you need those words in a different order, you need that line there or that line needs to go." Go for See, it. That is the sign of talent, isn't yeah, it? Totally agree. True talent yeah. doesn't really get yeah. precious about stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You were about to say something else and then I asked you about Michael Rosen. I don't think I was, but back to Michael Rosen. Yes. Um, uh, we had this fantastic session where I went to his house and sang him all the songs, and uh, it was just really refreshing because I was terribly nervous because I don't really like singing in front of anybody, really. I'm not a singer. Um, you're not a singer. You're not a pianist. No, I'm a pianist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, you're not a teacher. That's right. You're not a piano teacher. I remember that. Uh, and so um, it was just brilliant. We had a brilliant afternoon. Um, and, you know, we just sat around the piano and I sung the stuff. And he went, yeah, I really like that. Uh, how about you do this? And we just kind of worked forwards and backwards with a few things. So it worked both ways. You know, he was able to say, yeah, could we have another chorus? Or I really like that. Or that line doesn't work. And I'm absolutely fine about that as well. Uh, great. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, there is just one other thing that I need to do, mm. uh, which is to take a picture of you. Yeah, of course. That's all right. And not with me in it. I'll just leave that. Fair enough. Um, it's, it, it is a bit grim up here. No, because the, the great thing is is that I can just use portrait mode and we can get a hint of the shelf in the background. You want a hint of the shelf? I do, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but I would need you to stand up. Okay, so yes, I can do that. Uh, but if you stand just there, yeah, and I'll stand here. We don't need to. Uh, hang on. See, I haven't used this for years. She's definitely come to my work. Hang on. Let's just get that. Uh, and then maybe it'll work. Excellent. Seems to work. Um, Very good. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Oh,